Welcome to People from the Program, a podcast highlighting alumni from the NYU Music Business Program. Welcome everyone to People from the Program, the podcast that highlights the career journeys of alumni from the NYU Music Business Program. I'm your host, Bryce Butler, founder and chairman of the NYU Music Business Alumni Network and a proud alum myself of the NYU Music Business Program. Our guest on today's show is Clayton Durant, the founder of CAD Management, a music and entertainment consulting firm based in NYC. Clayton is not only a music industry entrepreneur, but also serves as an adjunct professor at the NYU Steinhardt School and the Long Island University Rock Nation School of Music and Entertainment, teaching music business and artist management. He is also an avid writer, having penned bylines for Boardroom TV, Variety, Adweek, and more. Clayton, welcome to the show. Thanks so much uh, for having me, Bryce. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for coming on, man. You got a great career journey and great experience, and I'm excited to be diving in with you, man. Thanks for coming on. Of course, of course. All right, so let's start with the first question I always like to ask my guests. Tell me about your journey to the NYU Music Business Program. How'd you find it? How'd you get here? So when I... I always knew I wanted to go to NYU at some point. Um, I was pretty lucky uh, having had a chance to grow up close to New York City. Anybody from New Jersey, um, I'm actually from Rumson, New Jersey, not too far away. So we'd be able to take the ferry in all the time. And, uh, you know, I always just knew NYU because uh, I used to watch the um, Rick Rubin documentary about him starting Def Jam um, (laughs) at Weinstein all the time. And, so I always just had this thought of, you know, I wanted to be in the music business. Um, I went to a small uh, liberal arts school called Roger Williams in my undergrad um, and really just, you know, felt the energy of this school from a long way away. And, um, uh, you know, my sophomore year of undergrad and college, I did, this, uh, I, I did it, um, a summer class uh, at NYU's journalism school sort of just exploring different uh, career paths at the time. I think I did um, a class in uh, uh, food journalism, actually, um, at the uh, the journalism school. And, you know, but there was always just this fascination with music with me. And um, I just didn't know how to get in there. Um, But, you know, I kept reading about everything that NYU was doing. And I always just made up my mind. I'm like, you know, hey, I'm I'm, I'm, going to be a part of this program one day. and, 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 you know, obviously got a chance to, uh, to be able to do that much later down the line, um, getting my master's uh, in, in music business. Um, and I had gone to probably, I'd say four or five of the open houses that they had and was sort of mm-hmm. like figuring out, hey, is this the right thing um, or not? And when I finally pulled the trigger and I'm like, you know what, hey, I'm going to really apply, um, you know, I was uh running my own music consulting agency and but really wanted more of the foundational knowledge and um had talked to a lot of people um from the program and people who had been a part of it and heard just you know amazing things and obviously you know had met Larry Miller um multiple times and he was a really big influence in wanting to uh to join the program and uh the year that you know I finally got in and got accepted covid hit um, so yeah. it was, uh, definitely, um, a little bit of a change for everybody, obviously. Um, but 
I'm really, really glad that I did it because I think getting a master's during COVID, particularly around the music business, was incredibly important because you watched some of the most stable pieces of the business, particularly live, get hit incredibly hard. Um, And you watched innovation happen, um, you know, almost in real time. So a lot of the courses that we were talking about and the things that we were talking about, um, I'll never forget there's a, uh, we take a class um, with uh, Professor Charles Sanders, and he's one of my favorite guys I got to meet um, during the course. Yeah, shout and, out to shout out to Charles Sanders. Yeah, he guy. yeah he yeah he's yeah he he really is amazing. Um, and it was the first uh, class um, of you know the the master's program, and I really thanked him because he gave us such great room to just talk about what was happening, and while we were in class you know you're watching live nation stock dip down to like ten dollars a share you're watching hundreds of shows be canceled and at the same time i was running a consulting agency that at the time its focus was tour strategy and tour consulting so all of these tours that we had booked that we had business with um and at the time i had five employees um oh wow you know we we couldn't make any money um, so I was not just going to school, but I was also, you know, being forced to really innovate my business at the exact same time. Um, and it was my first year at the program. Um, and because we weren't making any money on, on live, like everybody else was, um, we got some really great projects in and because of the space that I was in at NYU, I really felt like I was able to help my clients much more because I was just in a much deeper state of reflection um, and a deeper state of being able to think of, you know, what could the music business be after this? And I'll give you a good example. Um, mm. Before I went, before I came into school, I, um, you know, w- was writing a little bit for Entrepreneur Magazine and had a chance to interview a gentleman by the name of William Morris. He uh, was running the gaming division at Red Light Management. And this was before gaming was like really talked about in music. Right. But they had a small gaming division, right? And right. Uh, so, so Clayton, real quick, for the li- yeah. real quick for the listener, William Morris, no relation to yeah, no, WMA. Yeah, no, yeah, th- there is no relation to WME. His name just literally happened to be William Morris. Um, it's amazing. Yeah, uh, great guy, great guy. Um, but he was running the gaming division at Red Light. And if any, you know, for anybody who's in the music business, Red Light is, I think, by size and stature, the largest management company in the country. Yes. They've got, you know, Odessa. They've got Dave Matthews Band. Um, they've got Fish. They've got so many amazing acts, right? And I'd interviewed him because I was like, you know, this is a really interesting story. Like I had not really heard of a lot of games and music. And again, to be clear, like this is really before, um, you know, the Travis Scott uh, activation with Fortnite. This was before right, all of that. Right. And so I did an interview with him. I published it and we had kept in touch. You know, we, we were, you know, uh, really developing a good relationship and Around the time COVID began, they were facing the same problems we were because, you know, we had two managed uh, clients as, you know, from management side, but they called us and said, hey, you know, Clay, 
we are starting a um a new sister company um called hit command and we would love for you to come in and help us figure out the marketing and the promotion behind it um and and a lot of it was as sort of like a competitive uh how are we sort of uh you know positioning our services as a management company during this right. um really sort of disruptive time but also really looking towards the future in terms of the value that gaming and emerging technologies um and, and uh you know things like web3 was just sort of starting to bubble up at the time too yeah. that was all sort of housed under hit command and um so i got the project and so we're literally building this thing uh and talking about these subjects at the same time i'm getting my masters and it's because of the classes that i was in and the space that right. i feel like nyu was able to give me that we were able to you know help a management company as big as red light um and contribute to building um hit command which is now their you know their main stake uh you know gaming division that they have today wow. um and that's happened multiple times all throughout nyu uh, some of my most important career developments have happened during my time at nyu so you know i really can't thank all the professors and all of the um and all of my classmates and colleagues that really challenged me and put me in a um you know much deeper uh space of reflecting and thinking and um also you know really challenging what it means to be innovative wow i mean there are so many wow there's so many different places to go from there because i mean you're already i guess as a writer you're you're coming in and you're exploring that passion and so many different things are coming together right when you're like okay this is what i really want to pursue okay so we'll do something basic we'll we'll go the class route okay so while you're while you're pursuing all of this and then you're taking your classes what classes were kind of your favorite specifically which ones were tying directly in to these opportunities you just talked yeah. about so i information Absolutely. So first off, I want to shout out Professor Susan Dotis. Um, her class was absolutely amazing. I was not, you know, what class, what class was that? The, 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 yeah, the, the, this was music publishing, by the way. I oh, think okay. she teaches right. undergrad, if I'm not mistaken. She does this amazing um, sort of class that she also brings out students to Nashville. You know, um, she, she was a really big um, inspiration for me. And also um, somebody, again, who challenged a lot of the thoughts and things that I was going through as a business owner. Um, but the reason her class in music publishing was so critical was because, again, you, you know, you have to understand the context here, right? COVID, right. Um, you know, a lot more uh, traction was being focused in on uh, the recorded music space and also the publishing space, because that's where artists and a lot of the constituencies were making their money. So in our management division, we had lost a lot of money because we couldn't put anybody on tour. And um, one of the uh, sort of focal points of CAD management was uh, we were, um, we really deemed ourselves experts in um, building profitable artists. And our entire mantra right. was how do we get an artist to make the median threshold um, of uh, earnings in the United States? So, you know, we looked mm. at a lot of our artists and said, Hey, we're not going to try and build the next Justin Bieber because that's, you know, a, a, a lottery ticket in itself. Right. right. That's a unicorn why can't, kind of yeah. But why can't we make an artist 
and help right. build an artist who makes a hundred thousand dollars a year so that whether they live in Nashville, New York, they can live right. a comfortable life off of their art. And that was our goal. And right. we got Sounds. really good at it. We were able to help a variety of artists go from having to carry three or four gig economy jobs to being able to make that over $100,000 threshold. And that was our goal every time we would take an artist. We would say, hey, you might not be with us forever. We weren't you know, uh, naive in that perspective. But if you come here, we will make sure that you make enough to live comfortably in the median income that is necessary for the lifestyle that you want. And that was our sales pitch pretty much for any artists that <clears throat> we uh, ended up wanting to go work with. Now, the reason that Susan Dotis's class was so important was because at the time, because we couldn't put anybody on tour, um, we were looking at um, a lot of sort of new models in terms of making revenue. And one of the, uh, again, this sort of goes back to my writing sort of um, piece of it all. Um, I had done an interview. I was writing for Hype Magazine at the time. I'm not sure if anybody uh, who knows Hype, it's sort of like a hip hop magazine, you know. Um, and I'm familiar was, with Hype. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, so... I was doing a couple of uh, small interviews, and one of the interviews I did was a, 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 with a guy named Evan, um, and he was running a company called Movers and Shakers. Incredible advertising agency at the time. I think they were maybe only like 20 or 30 large. Um, today, they just got acquired by uh, one of the major advertising agency holding companies. Um, so obviously, they're much bigger today. Um, but we yeah. got them, mm -hmm. you know, we, got, we, we were having the conversation pretty early with them. And I did an interview with them. Um, about a original song that they had produced for elf cosmetics on tiktok and uh it was called eyes lips face it got huge it was really moving on tiktok actually hit um a lot of the spotify charts itunes charts apple charts all of that uh so because of the fundamentals that um professor dotis was able to sort of instill in me and you know what is a sync license what does you know all of these sort of royalties mean trying to you know really map out that ecosystem in a much more structural way um we ended up doing a year's work alongside movers and shakers working on um uh, one of my favorite campaigns that we got to collaboratively work on together was elf cosmetics holiday um album which came out in uh, 2020 <laughs> and uh <laughs> it was you know six songs but all of the six songs were songs that were already in the public domain and it was because of professor dotis's class that you know she was explaining how you know songs um they you know they are protected by copyright but there is a point in which copyright expires right, right. Mm -hmm. and once that copyright expires it ends up in the public domain and because of that foundational knowledge that we were you know i was able to grab from her class we were able to work with movers and shakers to find six public domain songs that were you know in the public domain that we were able to use for elf and we were able to create this amazing holiday album that you know was charting on Triller. It got you know hundreds of millions of views on TikTok, um, and it really took all of the information that was happening in that class, and we were applying it in real time. Right. So those are some of the experiences that really you know uh, talked that you know stem um, up to me. Another thing that you know um, was really really important uh, during my time was. Um, getting to spend time uh with professor spink um and i don't know i'm sure he teaches undergrad as well but it's, uh and professor spink amazing he, he he again is another uh great gentleman who you know really challenges you to think innovatively um and allows you to sort of like step outside the box 
right. and um it was because of our situation that we couldn't put anything on tour and we couldn't even do any tour consulting that we really started to relook at our business and one of the things that we wanted to do was start a record label um and mm. you know you have to understand the context of the time here too clubhouse was really big at the time right so i was spending a lot of time on clubhouse i was sort of going on and um and i ended up meeting a gentleman who ran a and r for soundcloud and you know we were talking back and forth and uh i was sort of sharing some of the aspirations that we had to sort of build something a little bit more foundational in terms of uh you know uh, building out a, a record label underneath the cad management banner and you know through various conversations over about a year's time um this is sort mm -hmm. of going into my second uh yeah going into my second year um of the master's program we were able to strike a deal with soundcloud becoming one of their first ever a and r partners um and they did this sort of uh uh deal alongside other companies not just us but it was also linda perry t-pain um and some others and uh we were one of the first ever uh you know companies to um have partnered with soundcloud um to develop artists through the soundcloud ecosystem and you have to understand too like at the time I don't think SoundCloud got the great, you know, uh, sort of brand cachet that it has now, right? It was oh, still sort of developing. Yeah. It was still coming out with um, its uh, fan-powered um, royalties and all of the initiatives that it has out now. Um, and we were one of the first partners in there. And uh, we were developing an artist named Maria Lynn. And uh, we got to release um, two albums, um, two al you know, two albums worth of content uh, with them and uh it became a really great partnership and it was the first time that i was like wow like you know we're talking about all these new models and stuff in class and then all of a sudden we became one of the first companies to you know really think about what it means to you know create almost like a distribution and label function and a label right. foundation through almost a traditional mm. streaming service which is something that you had right. you know been talking about and theorizing with you know, people like Professor Sanders and all of that. So um, that's why NYU played such a big part of it all. Um, it, again, it really just gave me a, um, a, a great space to think and and, and 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 sort of challenge the way that things looked and the th way that things are. Um, and I and I give it credit to th that's the reason that we were able to do a lot of the deals um, that we were during that time was because of, you know, the great people and the great professors and the great space that it gave. It can never be underestimated how important it is when you have this time in college, in academia, whether master's or undergrad, to be able to explore in an entrepreneurial way, even if you are pursuing something that is very traditional, but to be able to take your passions and pursue after them like you just said and be able to do creative things. Um, it's so important and I'm so glad you got you got to tell that story because People need to hear, people need to hear that if they're interested in going to the program, but just even now being able to think outside the box to create partnerships um, when problems arise to, to still move your business forward is essential. Um, I, I want, yeah, I want to go back. Oh, go ahead. Were you going to say something? Yeah. And I'll say even today, right? Like, you know, we just started working um, with a new music festival called Meta Moon. They um, are a live nation um you know partnered festival they uh you know had a 
Barclays for showing um, in 2022, um, you know, did great ticket numbers there. And, uh, you know, I still am a part of the community today. I still try and go to as many events as I can. Um, you know, I still don't live too far away from campus. So when I see certain things that I can, you know, make, um, I try and still do that because, you know, the community really is vibrant. And, you know, I've gotten so many great business opportunities just from being involved. And that I think speaks to the alumni and, and sort of the community that, you know, NYU sort of breeds um, across the board. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I do want to go back to something you said about about the gaming piece. You know, before, and, and I'm going to date myself a little bit, you know, the music industry in certain pockets has dabbled in this, right? Like Shaquille O'Neal, um, when he had his music career, he had his game, Shaq Fu. You had Def Jam with their fighter game, um, putting the artists actually in the game. You had 50 Cent with his game. But to me, those seemed like more branded opportunities, really showcasing the artist, as opposed to now, it's like the games and the and the, and the properties are just going to license so much original music into the game, where it can really become almost an artist discovery or a music discovery piece. Were you seeing more of that um, in your dealings when you were talking about just moving into the games and getting those licenses for music? Yeah, I think from the gaming side of things i mean i i think the platforms have obviously grown and evolved right there wasn't necessarily roblox there wasn't um you know all of these sort of platforms that are you know bringing gaming to the forefront um like they have i mean there are certainly some games that were always really important to music i always you know kind of go back to the nba 2k playlist um and all of the amazing years that you know the, the the music was sort of a really big sort of part of um the gaming experience but when i was getting a chance to work uh with red light what was probably the thing that stuck out to me the most is how gaming and social media are like so closely tied together now and all you have to do is look at something like twitch right um twitch is that sort of almost center fold ecosystem where music and gaming and content creators all of you know all of which all sort of come together right you have hundreds of thousands of people who will tune into um you know somebody playing pokemon or somebody playing call of duty or you know whatever the case may be or madden um yeah or madden or you know whatever uh the the case is and it's become a very big business um and you know music has a lot of opportunity uh to continue to grow adjacently alongside gaming um and i think the two you know create a great marriage and again you all you have to do is go look at how important music is to all of the sports games um that have come out and uh i think you know historically when you look at uh, some of the other games that you mentioned, even like a, the, 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 the Def Jam game, um, I think is a good sort of example. Um, it sort of shows like, I think people would very much love to see that game sort of be reinvigorated and reintroduced into the market. Because um, I certainly remember that. Uh, I remember that game and I remember, you know, how much, uh, you know, cool uh, cachet the Def Jam um, logo had. And it was something that, you know, I was talking 
to one of my colleagues when I was, uh, you know, doing my first adjunct year at the Clive Davis School at NYU. Um, I was saying, man, I'm like, you know how cool Def Jam is? Like just how, like just the logo and like the essence of yeah. Def Jam. Like I would, I, I you know, I, I went on uh, uh, eBay and got one of those uh, Puma collabs that they had. Uh, and it took me a while to find the right size, but you know, they still have such a cool sort of essence of them. And I think, um, you know, as, uh, you know, music companies can, uh, you know, continue to refine that for themselves um, and, you know, games continue to become a bigger part of the ecosystem. You're just going to see, you know, more and more interesting sort of collaborations in the gaming world. And I think th there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, and, and obviously it's just a continuing growing business and it will only behoove right. the music business um, as it continues to grow and expand to, you know, sort of, uh, jointly ride that that tailwind that model of game with regardless of what people are going to think about what i'm about to say the idea of just the essence of hip-hop and the idea of battling and beef and going at someone lyrically or creating this tension regardless of what you think about it that model of video game now that def jam did if you can go control and have a fighting game between between artists like like uh i don't know nba nba young boy you know does a mortal Kombat style battle game with chief key for something like that and you could play those characters that would explode <laughs> like i like, mean i i'm maybe. sure it would and and look like one of the most interesting things um and I'll sort of, you know, plug in something I've been working on a little bit. Uh, so we, we, we have a newsletter called um, Stat of the Week. It's in partnership with Chartmetric. And our sort of point in producing this LinkedIn newsletter is we want to describe from a, um, a qualitative perspective the impact that brand partnerships have on both brands, as well as the artists and their catalogs, right? Um, and one of the upcoming uh, stat of the weeks that we're going to be looking at is the impact that boxing has had on music. And I think there's, uh, when I look at music today, there's, I still think such an under leveraged opportunity for um, music artists to really tap into the boxing world. Boxing has gotten more popular today um, than it has probably like, you know, since maybe Mayweather's last really main big stream, uh, mm -hmm. big fight. Um, and, you know, some boxing purists may not, you know, enjoy this, but it, a lot of it has to do with Jake Paul and sort of sort of right. things that, you know, mm -hmm. him and uh, sort of these creators are doing. Um, and, you know, I could totally see, uh, you know, maybe artists getting involved in that space uh, uh, down the line as well. Um, and, you know, I think there's just a lot of opportunity uh, for, for, for that to be a, a part of it, but also just how music is sort of integrated in boxing. So, you know, even in some of the preliminary data that we're looking at, um, when you see the catalog lift that, uh, you know, artists who are walking the fighters out and, you know, the songs that are being featured um, in, in a lot of these mainstay walkouts, the catalog lift that these songs have is, you know, pretty direct and, um, oh, absolutely. It's, again, it's it's just super interesting to sort of see, uh, you know, just how deeply music is integrated into all of these sort of entertainment facets and how adjacent it is. And again, that that that's why NYU is such a great place to 
sort of put a stake in the ground and, and spend time. And um, because a lot of my classmates, you know, both within Steinhardt and, and outside of it, uh, were coming from such different industries. But when you really got to sit down and, and, and network with these people and understand their lines of business, you really started to see the synergies that were happening with music in very, very unique and interesting places. Like I'll never forget. I, you know, we, we were taking this one class over at Stern and uh, one of my classmates um, was working on Peloton. And uh, it was just, again, uh, an amazing to see how important music was to a fitness brand and, and a, and, and an equipment brand um, like Peloton and uh you, right. you just see like wow like music is sort of that one sort of trojan horse that can you know adjacently enter almost any space that you could really think of and and that's the beauty of the business and also the opportunity of it right like right you know when we when we were in school and we were you know looking at the projections of the business everybody was excited um about goldman sachs sort of prediction on how big the business can get um and all that and i keep thinking myself at the time that we were talking about that, there wasn't even any mention of artificial intelligence. Now you have, you know, this whole new sort of idea of AI and generative AI and these new sort of technologies and features that are coming out, like, you know, YouTube uh, partnering with major label artists where you can go on YouTube shorts and sort of type in a uh, sort of a generative um you can interact with its generative ai and create some sort of original song that is you know uh sung through ai's processing through in the voice of an artist like t-pain or an artist like charlie puth or any of that um and you know you have artists like grimes who are sort of starting to experiment with um this idea of licensing their mute uh, licensing their voice um out to uh, you know, collaborators to create a huge amount of, uh, you know, user-generated content. There's so much activity in that space right now. And all I see is like, yes, there's absolutely risks and there needs to be some assessment about that. There's no doubt about that. But this could easily be another moment where if the music industry gets it right, the number that Goldman Sachs is predicting could be nothing near what it could be if um you know some of these things are executed properly and that to me i think is really really exciting um as we move forward because anybody who's in the program or thinking about being in the program artificial intelligence is going to be a very big part of the discussion whether you are talking just about music or the creation of music or even just working in general right like um right. I do uh, some work um, at an an ad agency and PR agency called Mike Worldwide. And one of my projects that I'm, you know, spending a lot of time on is how we're using generative AI to, you know, think about, uh, you know, working with influencers, um, writing social copy, all of these sort of different things. And even on the artist and the music centric front, I think what's really exciting today for artists is the fact that generative AI will democratize human capital in the same way that CD Baby and DistroKid and all of those democratize access to music consumers. And that's super exciting because 
for a long time, you know, in school, we would always talk about the, the value of the middle artist, um, the, and, and sort of how much opportunity there is in sort of that middle realm relative to, uh, just focusing <clears throat> your entire, <clears throat> uh, sort of, you know, educational time on just examining the top 1%, right? right? And to me, I think that's super exciting. So for, so for anybody who's really considering the program today or is in the program, take some time to understand AI. Try and like get into some technology classes that might be a little foreign to you um, because I think mm -hmm. there's going to need to be people who are not just AI literate, but can also really communicate with the technologists to the creator um, and to the platform. And the people who are able to do that and have a working knowledge of that, I think are gonna be really, really well prepared to enter a music business that is absolutely going to be impacted by artificial intelligence. There's no doubt in my mind. I mean, you look at the EU coming out with its sort of sweeping AI legislation and uh you know they're you know concerned about how creators are going to be impacted and 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 all of that um the US is I don't I mean maybe they have a couple of things going on in uh, uh Congress or the Senate but nothing has really sort of come to the forefront um but what you do see is there are some major lawsuits right you've got the New York Times um you know suing uh OpenAI and Microsoft you have uh Universal Music Group um APCO Records and a few others, you know, suing uh, another technology company who's, um, you know, been uh, using licenses. And this whole idea of fair use is going to be really, really um, clarified, I think, in the next couple of years. So um, that's what I would do if I, if I were in the program today is, you know, really focus in on spending some time around understanding AI and understanding technology because, uh that is so important. And that's why the classes that talk about the history of technology and its relationship with music is so important. And I hope if anybody does get a chance, there's a professor um, who I also really loved uh, getting to spend time with, um, Howie Singer, who just came out with a book. Um, I hope I get the title right. It's like the 10 ways that music uh, and, and tech, music technology changed the music industry. And wow. um and and it really just shows you like over time it's the same story again and again technology comes it hits music probably quickest and fastest and hardest first and it's up to, you know to the industry if they get it right or not and if they get it right there's you know obviously uh some downside but hopefully then there's a net positive that happens after each you know revolution of technology that comes in and this ai thing i think is going to be that next sort of thing um and that's sort of something that is you know on top of my mind at least yeah i mean there's there's so much there and and i think we'll pivot a little bit because i want to get into kind of your the work experience cad how that, you know, you were already doing that before you got to the program. So how did having these experiences that you have as a writer, starting your own management company, kind of having that North Star of how do we create working artists or career artists, if we're not, like like you said, if we're not going for the Justin Bieber piece, 
you know, how do we create those career artists? How did that play into your story getting into the program? And then how did that play when it came to internships and all of this? Because you're already working, you're already in the business by the time you're, you know, the you're over, you know, the program is over with. So how did you navigate all of that? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> I think in terms of like the working and how that sort of played in, I think it was great because it allowed me to bring a unique perspective to class and sort of, I hope, be a positive vocal member of the, you know, classroom setting and sharing things that I was currently going through and thinking about and working on. Um, but it was also a great place to bounce ideas off. Some of the best things that we had had happen to us, um, you know, and again, I sort of go back to the SoundCloud uh, deal example. They were a lot of it was bounced off of classroom settings. Um, so th there was a really deep interconnection between studying and learning the information and, and doing that part, but also using NYU as like a think tank. And that I think was incredibly valuable. Like obviously the degree is incredibly valuable as well, but it was the think tank piece that was just as in, uh, valuable, at least for me um, in my experience in terms of, sort of like the working piece of it. I mean, we, we had so many different clients that were doing a lot of different things, uh, you know, during my time at NYU. But um, I think getting into the program, it was helpful because I had not had traditional corporate music experience in the way that like I worked at a major label or a streaming service or whatever, right? I was literally working for myself, but I was also interfacing with a lot of the major players. Like we were doing projects together and all of those sort of things. So I think that was really helpful in terms of the application process because I was very familiar with a lot of these topics, but maybe didn't understand or know enough about their history or enough about like, like the pure mechanics of it all. Um, and I felt like I had come in with a set of tools that were, you know, sharp, but leaving the program just made them so much sharper and i could see the quality of the deals and the quality of the work that cad was putting out relative to its clients and its artists and even myself um was just so much stronger and that was sort of the value proposition that was happening because as i was working i was you know studying and and, and it was like two you know, stones coming together, the working side plus the school side, sharpening the spear at the same time. And mm. that I think was really, really unique and cool. Um, and something that I'm really glad I had a chance to do um, because I wasn't necessarily green to the world. I had, you know, had artists that were on major labels. I had, you know, we were working with incredibly talented and well-recognized songwriters and, but again, it, it, it was just going back and really understanding, do you know this informational foundationally? And that's why after graduating, when I, you know, I had been, uh, I was in contact um, with the former dean of the Clive Davis School at NYU, uh, Jason King, um, who's an amazing gentleman. Uh, he reached out and we were sort of talking about um, me coming in to do a, a sort of this adjunct role there at Clive. Um, where I would be supporting uh, a gentleman by the name of Mark Plotkin, um, who runs oh, there, okay. how the mu contemporary music industry works. Um, and that was another spear that sort of continued to sharpen 
my tool set because now I didn't just have to, now I wasn't just working in the information and sort of doing it on a day to day. I had to, you know, understand the, you know, the foundational pieces of it, but now I had to teach it. Right. And that's sort of why I continue to do a lot of the adjunct teaching is not just because I enjoy, um, you know, mentoring. And I think it's a really important piece of it all is to give back because I didn't really, you know, have, um, a great way into the business. I sort of had to, you know, figure it out myself. And if I could, you know, right. sort of pass some of the great things that I've had, you know, happen to me along, then I think that's, you know, important in terms of giving back. But it also acts as like a really sharp spear because it continues to allow me to like continue to be a student like through this game because I feel like the moment that you get too confident and you're like, oh, I know all of this and all of that, like th this business will come back and hit you really hard. Um, and that's sort of my mantra on it is I, I always just want to like make sure I'm fluid and I'm not like too confident in like what I know and that I'm always open to information because that openness to information sometimes is the difference between identifying a really critical game changing deal and not or identifying an artist or identifying a song or um, an opportunity um, versus not. And I think that's something just really, really important to keep in mind um, throughout any of your time, whether you're in NYU or you're just graduated or anything like that. It's just to always keep that 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 open mind. And that's why, you know, again, I, I, I give such great credit to the Alumni Association and everything that uh, NYU's Music Business Steinhardt program does from an alumni perspective um, is because I want to always keep that going. And, you know, the events and things that they have is just a great conduit to be able to do that. Absolutely. And nothing will make you have to be a sponge more than artist management, touching every part of the business, particularly with, with the North star of your company. If you're talking about creating career artists, you're going to have to be able to squeeze out every opportunity and see the angle in all of these different verticals. So being able to do that, you have to be a listener. You have to be someone that learns things that you may not have known. You're going to have to be someone that's open to explore different possibilities of how you can get the music in front of other people and get the artists in front of other people. So it makes perfect sense. Yeah. I mean, and again, I, I think music management is a really good sort of swath to touch a lot of different things, but it was because of that swath that like, before I came to NYU, I would say like, yeah, I wasn't, you know, that deep into publishing. Now I can say I'm a lot deeper into it and I right. understand like a lot more of the intricacies. And it's because I understand a lot more of the intricacies, let's say as an example with music publishing, that I'm able to help our clients today earn more money because of that. Right. And that's sort of the value that the school was able to give. Now, you know, we have clients that we're consulting for that I'm very clear on, you know, how are we getting our neighboring rights? How, you know, where do we, we need to go and register? You know, do you have everything properly put in? And I'm able to do all of that sort of, uh, you know, publishing administration work a lot more in detail and a lot more, um, you know, uh, efficiently, which has resulted in our clients making more money. And as a result, the firm making more money. So I think, again, it all really plays into, um, again, knowing the information and just continuing to be a student and, um, you know, continuing to sharpen that spear. 
Talk about the Long Island University, you know, Rock Nation School of Music and Entertainment, and talk about coming back and becoming an adjunct professor at the NYU Music Business Program uh, that we attended. What, what went into those decisions? How did that come about? Yeah, so I actually started um, at, at the Tisch School of the Arts um, through the Clive Davis School. Again, you know, Jason King was amazing and sort of gave me my first chance into um, you know, being a part of that as well as, you know, Mark Plotkin. Um, and that was just an amazing experience. Uh, it was a year of, you know, taking on at the time it was 15 or 20 students and sort of doubling down into very specific topics from concert management to, um, you know, royalty ecosystems to, you know, the intricacies of publishing and recorded music deals. Um, so all of that is really where it started. Right. And it kind of lit this fire, like, Oh, this is really, great and interesting. Um, but the way in which I wanted to sort of run any of these classes was sort of on three basic principles. Principle one was uh, studying and understanding the concrete information, right? If you don't understand, you know, what a mechanical license is or what a mechanical royalty is, then, you know, it's going to be very hard to go and find the money and be able to do the actual thing that, you know, is going to um, actually make the revenue. So, you know, we always focus heavily um, on that. Um, the second was building a network, right? So really uh, opening up my Rolodex and, um, you know, people I knew in the business to uh, students um, so that they could have an opportunity uh, to, you know, network and sort of connect the dots when they are sort of starting to get into that deal-making process. Um, and then thirdly is to, um, you know, not just look at the music business, but look at adjacent businesses and really look at what could be around the music business rather than just what is. Um, so I, I always tried to run like my lectures in those sort of three um, buckets. And when I was at Clive, they were amazing. They gave me a lot of flexibility. Um, and one of my favorite moments was I... Um, was on Instagram and I saw that Rihanna was playing the Super Bowl. And I'm like, oh, this is really cool. I'm, yeah, obviously, I'm a big Rihanna fan. Uh, uh, okay. So I looked at the press release and I see this guy's name. His name was Seth Dudowski. I'm like, oh, man, like, what if I asked him to come to NYU and just speak to students about how the Super Bowl is run? And I DM'd right. him on Instagram. And within an hour, I got a response. He hits me back and he goes, yeah that'd actually be really cool. I'm actually planning on being in New York around this date. And it just so happened to align with my final. Uh, oh, wow. So as a part of, you know, the last piece of the final, um, I had Seth Dudowski come to NYU's Clive Davis School, and he gave us a whole rundown as to how the Super Bowl works and how the NFL leverages music. Um, and it was so cool because I'm, I'm like, wow, like this is – sort of the the thing right like like being able to connect all the dots so you're talking about you know he's talking about licensing so he's talking about the foundational information then you know we're having the discussion on you know how it actually functionally works but then you're also talking about you know a lot of these broader topics and you bring all of the lectures sort of in this sort of one moment and you're also allowing an opportunity to give students a chance to, you know, network with somebody who, you know, might be able to uh, give them opportunity to maybe get their first sync or, 
you know, maybe able to make an introduction to the right person. And you're really starting to build that Rolodex. So that's where it started. And from there, I, I got re, uh, a, a LinkedIn message um, from uh, the dean of the Rock Nation School, Tressa Cunningham. And I was like, oh, this mm. looks really cool. Um, I actually like sort of knew about it. Um, but they were like, hey, you know, we have this sort of open position uh, in um, uh, the Brooklyn campus. And, you know, I get on the, I get on a phone uh, call with them and it was Tressa Cunningham, but it was also uh, this gentleman by the name of Young Guru, um, who is... Uh, oh, very familiar know. with Young Guru. Yeah, super yeah, exactly. Engineer. Yeah, a superstar engineer. And I'm like, and I'm like, first off, before we even start the interview, I said, I said, excuse me, I'm like, Guru, you have to know that I was maybe 20 years old and I had come to an NYU conference. It was like this 808 tech conference. I think it was the name of it. And he was speaking there. And I was like, I always wanted to meet you. So before we start, like you're a really big inspiration as to sort of how, you know, I got into this all. And I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, and, uh, so yeah, we had this interview and I kind of gave my sort of experience and sort of my perspective on it all. And they gave me my sort of first full-time, you know, adjunct uh, role where I was teaching artist management. And I ran the class through sort of the same lens. And now we're, you know, going into its second year. Um, we've, you know, covered incredible topics. I have anywhere between 35, uh, yeah, about 25 to 35 students. Um, and you know, we have amazing guest speakers come in. Uh, you know, we have executives from universal executives from APCO records. We have, um, you know, people from streaming services like Crunchyroll, um, and all of these people that I've, you know, gotten a chance to know, um, you know, through my writings and through my business dealings and all of that. And um, it, it's been just such an incredible experience to be able to sort of put the puzzle pieces together for students and really help them, you know, make that leap forward. And a lot of my students have gotten, um, you know, jobs and uh, maybe gigs or, uh, you know, brand opportunities off of some of the stuff that I've had. Like I have a student at the Rock Nation School who I, you know, sent around this opportunity um, with a Coca-Cola brand, um, and they actually got it. And they emailed me and they said, Hey, professor, you know, I can't really come into class, um, for, for, for this date, literally because they actually got the brand opportunity that I sent through in an email. Um, oh, I've had, excellent. you know, students, um, when I was at uh, Tisch school of the arts, um, you know, I'd send through internships and all of that. And I would sort of, you know, try and help them where I could. And, one of them got their first, you know, uh, you know, major label internship um, because they, you know, uh, responded to the email and, you know, uh, looked at some of the stuff I was sending and, you know, would send these really nice thank you notes. So every time you get those thank you notes, it's like, damn, like, yeah, that, that was that was really worth, um, you know, the time and the effort. And uh, you just sort of hope that, you know, they can bypass some of the confusion that I went through, um, sort of got getting into it because, um, you know, I didn't have necessarily like as much, um, guidance in that, in terms of like a formal education, um, just because, you know, our school at the time just didn't offer it. Wow. It's, you know, it sounds like you get so much fulfillment out of kind of paying it forward. 
and sewing into these, sewing into the students, but just being able to make those connections and kind of take that entrepreneurial mindset that you have um, and apply it to your teaching, be able to find unique opportunities for students to be able to further their careers, which is going to be so valuable to them. Yeah. And I'll say this too, like when you teach, you learn so much from the students in terms of how they're consuming music, who they're listening to, um, because music is a young person's game. It really is. And being able to teach is like sort of a direct, like focus group into how they're looking at music and what they're listening to and how they're listening to it. Right. What they think is cool. So I'd say like a lot of my sort of touch on, you know, my experience around what's culturally relevant is actually stemming from the time that I spend with students on a week to week basis. Um, And that's why I'm so excited to be able to come back to Steinhardt in this way. Um, And that's why, you know, I even shared it on my LinkedIn. I'm like, this is such a full circle moment for me because Steinhardt, you know, provided me with so much um, in terms of like the network, the, the space, the knowledge and all of that. And to now was almost two years later, come back and be able to, you know, teach a course this spring um, is, is really, you know, an amazing thing. And, and I'm really excited. I've got, you know, a great, you know, 15 weeks lined up. Um, I think students are going to be really excited uh, to be a part of this. I think I've got like 40 students um, across all these different, uh, uh, you know, colleges across the NYU community, um, people from Gallatin, people from Stern, people from Steinhardt, people from Tisch. Um, and so I'm really excited to see the group kind of come together and like hopefully inspire that fire that's within me to like be a part of this whole business and this whole sort right. of ecosystem. Um, and if that's the case and I can, you know, help inspire that and, and maybe, you know, get them their first break. That's the whole point of it all. Um, and, and I really do believe in, you know, karma in terms of giving it back and the universe right. will reciprocate. Um, so I think that's always important. People in your position, people that do what you do. I always like asking this next question, put you on the, put you on the spot a little bit, Clayton, but I think you can handle it in 2024. Does it matter as much for the management company or for the manager to also be the label? Is it, is it, is it traditionally, right? It's been a conflict of interest. Does that matter anymore to you? Do you still see that? Or is it, Hey, you do whatever you need to do, obviously, to further your artist. If you need to act as the label for three months and then back to the manager, you do that. Like, how does that work contractually? And do you, does it, yeah. is it still viable? Like, well, I'd love to hear your we, thoughts on it. Well, well, with SoundCloud, we sort of became the management company plus pseudo the label a little bit, right? right. Um, the deal structures were actually very friendly for the artists um, in terms of the actual like deals themselves. But I'll say this, whether, whether or not you have, you know, you had a a structure like we did with SoundCloud, um, the management company has to be sort of the, the, the label in the beginning. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll tell you why, even if you're 
signed to a major label, it's still incumbent on the team and the managers to really put a lot of the planning together. And it's just, it's just sort of the, the um, human capital element of it all. And by that, I mean, if you are at, let's say, uh, you know, whatever label you want to call it, and there's a hundred employees, but they've got, you know, a hundred artists, but you know, maybe 10 of those artists make 80% of the revenue and you have a lot of those 10 artists who are active in a year, they may need to deploy some of that human capital to the areas that are making the most amount of money. Now, to me, that's really where I think the manager steps in and be, and says, okay, like, hey, you know, we're going to come in and support this and sort of add into the human capital bucket um, and, and, right. and really help produce the work. And that's sort of like our experience with it all. Um, we really, and, and that was our experience uh, with SoundCloud as well, where, you know, we would really have to put in a lot of legwork, but I think that makes the project have a lot more synergy um, because it's not as much of like a, um, of a team sort of just like coming in and out. Like you're really working with the artist every day. So you're making the marketing plan. You're, you're thinking through like the track list. And of course, like you, you, you want to tap into, you know, your partners with their expertise as well. Right. So you're not just doing it sort of all siloed on yourself, but there is a base that you really need to establish as a management as a manager and as a management firm in relation to sort of the label um, and, and, and their priorities, because, you know, you're going to need to come up with solutions sometimes. Like for instance, you may be getting X amount of budget, right? And sometimes that X amount of budget right. doesn't cover all the things that you want. And then all of a sudden you as a manager have to go and figure out how are we going to finance this? Can we go and get some brands involved? Can we, you know, like, should we look to raise a round of capital, right, for an artist in exchange for maybe points on a future record or something, right? You have to be super creative in sort right. of mm -hmm. how you want to go and, and raise that money. But ultimately, you know, what the manager's job is, where, where I see it, is sort of twofold. And I always say this to my students as well. It's, it's being the chief operating officer of the artist and the I art. hope, yep. yeah, of the artist. And I hope that artists who, you know, if they get a chance to listen to this, take away that they need to focus on treating themselves as a, as a business. And, and, and all too often, I, I don't see artists actually treating themselves as a, as a business. Um, by treating yourself as a business, I mean, you know, literally getting incorporated and, and, and doing all of those sort of things. Um, but also just in the mindset, right, uh, of making sure that you're, you know, looking at yourself as the CEO of your creative enterprise rather than just, a, you know, a, a recording artist. Um, right. And it's in that sort of space that being the chief operating officer, the label and, you know, whether you're talking about a label, a publisher, a talent agency, they're all stakeholders and they all have sort of like their own agendas and their own business models and the way that they make money. But as the manager, you're sort of the center fielder. You're like, well, I'm super, you know, attached to this artist. And, you know, uh, of course, the agent's going to make money when, you know, we go on tour and the label's going to make money when we, you know, get our, uh, you know, music consumed and all of that. But that chief operating officer role has to be able to get all of those stakeholders to sort of, you know, move in tandem 
with a certain strategy in place to be able to ultimately grow an artist to create that line of profitability. And that I think is the right. challenge. And it's much more of a challenge today because there's a huge amount of content in the marketplace, not just music either. I always tell my right. students this music is no longer just competing against music, right? You hear the whole stat of there's like a you know quarter million songs that are released every day, right? That was sort of the last number that Luminate put out there. But you're not just competing against the music, you're competing against the random, you know, scrolling that's happening with, uh, you know, influencers on TikTok. You're competing against Netflix. You're competing against Broadway. You're competing against all these things. So anytime an artist thinks about doing something as simple as, hey, I want to play, you know, a local New York City artist says, hey, I want to play a show in New York City. They're not just competing against the other tours that are happening, but they're competing against, you know, a new movie that might be coming out. They, they're competing against Broadway. They're competing against, um, you know, a sports game that might be there, right? And then also underneath all of that is the economics of the current state of, you know, the U.S. economic space, right? So you, you know, you have to look at, right. you know, how much inflation is there? Do people have as much disposable income as they had before, right? And the reality is today that people are still very tight with their spending. Um, you know, in fact, there, you know, I keep seeing data that, uh, you know, people are holding back on spending on certain things, but there are certain things that they are willing to splurge on, right? And the things that they're willing to splurge on are the Beyonce concerts, the Taylor Swift concerts. But you also have to think today's market, you have every major artist going on tour, right? You've got Beyonce, you've got, you know, Taylor Swift is going to do her next leg. You've got all, you know, you got bands like Creed who, you know, uh, are coming back together to sort of ride this new touring wave and where that puts sort of independent artists is in an interesting spot because you not only have to compete with the economics of, you know, um, inflation and all of that, but you also have to compete with this massive amount of new touring product that's entering the market. And sometimes the product that you're putting out there in terms of a show might not be as enticing as let me save a couple extra bucks and go to the big show. Right. And th right. those are the decisions that the consumer is making. And that's really where the manager comes into play. It's like, how do we sort of navigate all of this and where do all of the stakeholders sort of play? So I don't think it's just about the manager acting as a label. They literally have to be the chief operating officer and engage and align and sort of, you know, push each stakeholder Right. To ultimately hit that threshold goal, which for us was always around 100 to 150,000 a year right. mm -hmm. for an artist. And once I feel like you hit that threshold, then it becomes the next question of, you know, what do you want? You know, there are some artists that don't want to be superstars. There are some artists that are just like, wow, you got us to this point of, um, you know, being profitable that's amazing. Like, thank you. You know, and, and, and that's sort of where they want to be. There's some artists that do want to take it to the next step. And most of the times when they want to take it to the next step, I always say anybody wants to get into management and this is, you know, coming from a, a, a quote from a mentor of mine, um, management isn't about if you're going to get fired, it's when, right? So we always know that, right? right? Like <laughs> we, we, we sort of know like that's going to be the case, but we always kind of like being and, a head coach in a pro sport. <laughs> exactly. Right. Like, um, so I, I sort of think that, uh, 
that's also important is just to sort of, you know, make sure that you end things on like an amicable, amicable note. Amicable. <laughs> uh, yeah, amicable. No. Yeah, um, and, uh, you know, just let, let sort of things like uh, sort of fall into place. But again, we're just trying to get to a, a place where artists can earn a living off of their art. And whatever that means for them is what it means for them, right? Like some may want to live in the country and that might mean something different for them versus some that, you know, want to live different lifestyles. So one of the first things I do with any client is I literally say, what do you want? Like what kind of lifestyle do you want to live? Right. And we actually will budget it out. Some of them have said, you know, I want to buy my first house. Great. How can we, you know, create a plan and, you know, consult and manage you through that lens of being able to, help you achieve that and those are the things that i think are really really important that's why it's not just about you know the manager acting as just a label because the label is just one stakeholder right like right. you have to act and understand all the stakeholders and how to best engage with them and that goes back to why nyu was so important was because the thing that really sharpened the spear the most at least in my case was understanding what each of those stakeholders are actually doing what they're because doing, once, yes. you, once mm -hmm. you understand what they're doing and what their business is and how they operate you can sort of reverse engineer that and interface with them at a much more intricate level where they know that you understand them they understand you and it's much easier to get everybody sort of in lockstep to achieve that goal Right. Um, and that's right. sort of my lens and, and take on it. Wow. That's a that's a thorough, great take. I love it. <laughs> I love getting kind of that wisdom from people that are in the trenches and doing it. Um, no, this has been great, Clay. And my final two questions are and, and you kind of touched on this earlier, but we can ask again. What are you curious about right now? I know you talked about AI, but is there anything else it could be anything in life that you're curious about? I mean, I right now, I am still really curious about why consumers have such a like tough time understanding the economic bargain that they're getting when they're getting into paid streaming. That to me is still something I'm very curious mm. about because here's my, here's just my, again, high level, not, you know, semi-research thought is you have, a, you know, you have a, a streaming service like Netflix that's like, okay, hey, well, you know, we'll up our price by a couple bucks, you know, maybe some people, and, and all of a sudden they start doing password crackdowns. You know, I'm not sure if you've experienced this whole thing yet, but it's, uh, <laughs> no, you know, I haven't experienced so, it yet. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so they're, so they're doing all these things, right. To essentially get more people into the mantra of, okay, you got to pay. Right. And you know what, know what they're doing pretty darn well off of it. Right. Maybe there is some initial background backlash around, Oh, why are you doing this? And all of that. But ultimately the consumer got in line and they're like, all right, we're, we're game. We're, we'll do this. We, we love our Netflix. But why is it that when a streaming service ups itself by a dollar, everybody's all up in arms. Like, Oh my goodness. Like we're up, we're upping it by a dollar. When in reality, like I think streaming is such an economic bargain. 
Oh, absolutely. Like, you're yeah, you're getting a couple hundred million songs for like the price of going to Starbucks twice, you know, <laughs> twice a month. Like right. that right. to me is amazing. And and just think about like how integral music really is into everything. Like every time I step on a subway, I have my headphones in every time I'm just walking around, like the amount of music I consume relative to what I pay. Like if I were to like, like really think about that, I'm like, man, like this is such a great deal. Um, so that's just something that's curious to me is, this whole streaming model thing and, you know, getting people to pay more and all of that. And and I've been really researching it and trying to you know, wrap my head deeper into it, but just at a very basic principle level, maybe it's just me. Maybe I just love music and maybe it's just come to a point where like people just genuinely feel that like music just should be free or just should like, you know, you shouldn't have to pay for it and it should just exist. Um, but I don't know. That, that's just something that's really curious to me. Like, I really hope that, you know, the streaming services get to a place where they are, you know, they, they are comfortable with being able to say, hey, you know, you got to pay 20 bucks a month right. for, you know, streaming services. And, you know, at, at the same time that the consumer f- feels like, hey, you know, that that's a fair value. Right. Because I still right. get the sense that, you know, music is very underpriced um in terms of the amazing value that it gives and even if you look at something like spotify like you know it's was it 11 bucks a month now and like you get all this amazing content i love their playlists i love their um their new dj algorithm thing plus Plus the podcast plus i'm really getting to the audiobooks now right um Mm. and that sort of leads me to sort of the second thing i'm like sort of curious about I keep reading about the sort of issues and the concerns that the artist community, and by artist, I mean author, uh, the author community has with Spotify allowing Spotify premium users to get 20, I think it's like 20 hours a month for free of audiobooks. Yeah. Um, and I keep seeing all of these op eds, like, like, you know, this is going to be terrible for authors and, um, and there's some certainly like some valid, you know, points in some of these op-eds, but one of the th- consistent things I continuously see is the fact that, you know, streaming has derailed the music industry. And I don't think that's true. I, I, I really <laughs> think that like, we need to give credit where credit is due and the music industry was in a much worse place when people were just rapidly pirating, um, yep. versus today. Um, and can it get better? Need, does it need to get continue to get better? Of course. Right? There's always things to improve on, and that's you know why there's really, really smart people trying to work on it and figure it out. But I do wonder like how it is going to impact the sort of book and author community. Um, my sort of take on it is I think it's going to be a really net positive. I think if TikTok right. can move book sales for places like Barnes & Noble, then spotify introducing books and some people are like yo i i would like i'll give you a good example right i just got don passman's new 13th edition book for everything you need to know about the music business right i also bought the audiobook of the same book on itunes because i'm like you know what i i want the hard copy because there are some things i want to highlight and you know i like to have something physical but i also want to be able to just hear it right like to just sort of follow along 
And I think there's a lot of people like that who um, will sort of dabble in both. And I think that's one of the things that the book business has on the music business that puts it in a little bit better of a position. Like, I think consumers are more comfortable saying, yeah, I still want the book, but I'll also get the, you know, the audio book. It's the same right. way that they'll say, hey, I, I want to stream this album, but I'm absolutely happy to get it on vinyl. Right. Like, it, I think I think they're in sort of that same space. Um, so I'm just not sure, like, if it's going to be this detrimental thing to um, to book to the uh, to the publishing industry as much right. as, you know, um, some of the people are thinking out to be. But th- those are some of the two things I'm so curious about. And I really do hope that, you know, and I'm happy to pay it too. I'm happy to pay 15 to 20 bucks a month for, for streaming, especially if they can get like super fan sort of, right. you know, features on there. Like I'm a huge Chris Brown fan. The amount of, you know, I would be happy to pay 20 bucks if I could get like, you know, a couple of unreleased songs of his and stuff, maybe like, you know, little videos of like stuff that he's working on and, all of that. And I think there's a lot of people out there who have their own super fandom to other artists who would be very much willing to do the same. And so I'm just excited to sort of see the development of all those platforms and continue to hope that, um, you know, the same way that Netflix is very comfortable, you know, moving the price up uh, and, and making these sort of moves at the, at the streaming services for music um, feel just as comfortable to do the same. And, Hopefully the consumer understands, right? Obviously, I think the biggest challenge is getting the consumer to buy into that. Um, right. And for some reason, it's like, you know, water, electricity. Everybody needs it, but not everybody sort of like thinks about it. And um, and uh, again, I just hope it's something that they figure out. But again, th- th- those are just the two things that are sort of buzzing around my mind lately. Yep, that's the age-old battle of the power user versus the casual user. <laughs> and yeah. and how do you service those users when the casual user who's only listening to maybe two or three artists like well I don't need all this other stuff <laughs> so it's a it's a it's a fine balance you know um okay no that's a great answer and then last question if you could go back and talk to yourself on the first day that you started the program what would you say to yourself huh it's always a it's always a really good one. Um, I would just continue to encourage myself to network and meet people outside of just your specific program. Um, so for me, I spent a lot of time at the NYU Entrepreneurship Center meeting a lot of really cool people. And I think that's super important. Like, don't just stick within like your cohort or your sort of grade or your major expand out because the moment that you get to expand out and you get to meet people who just aren't maybe as familiar with your business and maybe they're experts in other things, it's that sort of collaborative moment where you're like, Oh, this could be something really interesting that I bring back to my world. Right. And that's what I think I would continue to encourage myself to sort of go and do. And hopefully other students who are in the master's program or the undergrad program do the same. So, you know, if you're an undergrad 
go, you know, and you're in Steinhardt, um, go, you know, meet with people from Stern, meet with people from Tish, meet with people from Gallatin, put your, but you have to force yourself to go into situations that you're going to meet new people. And sometimes that's hard, right? Because you're like, Oh, I don't know anybody. Like, you know, for instance, again, where I met, uh, my, our, our new sort of partner and, and client Metamoon was at a, um, uh, it, it was at an event at NYU, um, that was, uh, I think through one of the, um, Asian student societies. And, um, again, like everybody, you know, the, pretty much the entire panel was speaking Mandarin and there was, you know, a really nice, uh, student who was, came next to me and was happy to translate what was going on. Um, but those are sort of like the moments that I think are really important because I knew nothing really about the C-pop space or, you know, um, really any of that territory stuff, but I still showed up because I really believe in creating serendipity for yourself, right? Just the art of creating luck is so important. And that's what I would just remind myself is serendipity doesn't just happen immediately. It happens over just practicing a consistent pattern over time. And I think the consistent pattern that I hope that anybody listening to this sort of hears is put yourself in situations that are uncomfortable. And by uncomfortable, I just mean new, right? And new situations that make you feel a little uncomfortable over time likely can yield to like the most interesting opportunities that you never even thought existed. And that has been so true for me, both at NYU and just in the way that I sort of handle my career um, is just put yourself out there and, you know, just continue to be genuine, um, be thoughtful, uh, and just honestly just be a nice person because, you know, nobody wants to work with, you know, someone who's mean or somebody who, you know, is, is, is doesn't have great values. Put all that together and no matter what, you know, sort of area you want to be in in music, you can find your way. And lastly, my other thing that I would go back and say to myself is the music business isn't just the major labels or the major talent agencies. There's so many places that music exists in companies now. So if you love fashion and you're like, man, I love fashion, but I also love music. Sometimes you need to take the chance and go and create your own job and go and create your own opportunity. And that I think is a really another important piece of it all. Like if you see something and there's like an opportunity there and it just isn't existing, well, maybe you need to go and create it and create a pitch deck to convince a company that they need it. Um, Or, you know, create your own, you know, sort of a firm that addresses that, that need. And that I think is sort of the underbelly of NYU, which is this challenge to think of what could be. And that's why I'm, again, I'm just so not surprised that Def Jam was started here and all these other amazing companies um, is because of that sort of perspective. And I hope that any student that like, loves certain things and they can't really see maybe themselves just working at a label or just working there. And maybe they have different loves of different things. Then go and find a way to go and make that sort of combination a reality. And look, it may take some time. 
It may take a little bit of tweaking, but if you continue to commit yourself into, you know, putting yourself in new spaces and introducing yourself to new people and opening your mind to, you know, uh, people who maybe just aren't just in the music business, there's no doubt in my mind that you can go and find that, that sort of space. And then once you find that space, it's on you to, you know, continue to deliver great work. And, um, and over time, that's, that's where great things start to build on themselves. Clay, now I don't think anything more needs to be said. <laughs> that's a perfect, yeah. that's a perfect way to end this episode. Um, I mean, thank you for coming on, man. There's so many gems I think people are going to get from this conversation. And just thanks for coming on and sharing your experience. It's been great. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, 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 man. Really good stuff. And everyone, that was Clayton Durant, founder of CAD Management. Um, Clayton, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. You can stay tuned for more episodes coming in the future. In the meantime, you can follow me on Twitter at BryceB88. Um, I will have more episodes coming. um, But until then, take care and be well. Thanks for listening to this episode of People from the Program. Be sure to check us out anywhere you listen to your podcasts and stay tuned for future episodes of the show. 